Well, hey everyone, good morning. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City. We're very uh, thankful to have you worshiping with us on this Sunday morning here, whether it is uh, your first time uh, worshiping with us or your hundred and whatever. I don't know. I don't know how many Sundays we've had as a church. Either way, though, we're really happy to have you here with us, no matter which, uh, no matter which time it is that you're worshiping with us. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to hop into our sermon today. Lord, we thank you that you meet us when we gather together uh, on Sunday mornings. Um, you gather with us as well. It's not just us in this room together playing a game or uh, using some story that we made up to just um, you know, come up with a reason to be here, but you actually meet us in power with your presence and, and in love, God. I pray that you would be with us in this space this morning. Um, help us to feel you as we worship, as we uh, hear from you, Lord, as we spend time seeking you out in, in, in Jesus, who, who you have come in uh, in person to meet with us, um, and as we gather together after the service is over as well, Lord. Um, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are in the third week of a series that we're doing this fall where we are kind of focusing on the question of deconstruction or deconstruction or asking you know, hard questions about the faith. And, and we've kind of been talking about how this is actually a helpful thing for us to do as Christians. Um, it's actually something that has been sort of part of the Christian tradition since the beginning, I would say, and even going back to the people of Israel and the prophets, asking hard questions, challenging us to be more truly who God has called us to be by asking you know, if what we're doing is actually honoring or faithful to God. Uh, but one of the things that we've talked about how is, is when we do this, it's kind of like uh, taking a house down. Um, and the goal shouldn't be to tear a house down completely so that now you're just sleeping outside every night with sort of nothing to protect you when challenges come, but rather to build something back up again that is going to uh, stand up to scrutiny, that's going to stand up to the challenges of life, that's going to make sense of the world well. And so what we're, what we're doing is we're talking about how we as Christians, when we do ask hard questions, when we do maybe deconstruct, if we want to use that word, are doing it in such a way that we're building back up again on the foundation of Jesus. Now, to do that well, we have to understand who Jesus is. And so what we've been doing for these first three weeks is really just taking a good hard look at who Jesus actually was, as he's presented to us in the Gospels, in these sort of uh, uh, letters or, or books that were written by people who spent time with him to try to uh, communicate to people who would read afterwards, just like, like who we are, uh, you know, what happened in the ministry of this person and how we can make sense of it and interpret it well for ourselves so that we can, like the first followers of Jesus, uh, repent and believe and follow after him. But a lot of stuff can kind of grow up alongside of that. And, and w as we grow up in the church, perhaps, we can inherit or receive things around that uh, tradition of who Jesus is that aren't necessarily there from the beginning or, or maybe grew up later on and should have been there. But um, in order to get to that place, we had to kind of walk along the right path uh, ourselves. And so it can be confusing sometimes. And so um, what we wanted to do is we do want to talk about, you know, big topics, things Christians believe like heaven and hell or uh, creation we'll be talking about next week, scripture, right? But we wanted to do so with the starting point of Jesus himself. And so we figured, let's take three weeks to really just do this. And, and so um, 
In week one, we talked about the starting point of Jesus as a prophet. This is how the, the first people who experienced him, initially experienced him as a, as a great prophet, kind of like the prophets in, of old in Israel, coming and proclaiming a message from God uh, and calling people to repent and to follow what God was doing. Um, and then last week, we talked about how uh, this prophet uh, was crucified and then raised again and what the significance of that was for him and the very first people who followed along. And today, we are getting to the real big, real big question. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you what that is here in just a sec. But first, I want to remind you that what we're doing throughout this series is we're actually giving you a chance to send questions in. And so we'll do our best after the sermon uh, to answer a couple of questions. We, we probably won't get to them all. We're getting... Uh, like 15 or so questions a, a week, which is really exciting, um, but it's a little bit too much to answer on a Sunday morning maybe. And so um, anyway, you can go to our website at rezcitychurch.org and you can uh, fill in questions. So at any point during the sermon, um, if you want to go ahead and, and throw a question in there, we'll do our best to get to some after the sermon. And if we don't get to all of them today, we've actually been releasing videos on YouTube where uh, the preacher will try to answer some more questions or really respond to them. Like we call it Q&R because question and answer, I, I feel like, is not always helpful because like, I can give a response or a thought to a question, but that doesn't mean it's the answer. Um, and so, anyway, we'll do our best to respond to questions, give, give thoughts or, or comments on them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you have a good question, like, don't just, you know, stop with, with what me or Julie have to say. Like, go ahead and study it on your own. There's a lot of really smart people out there who have been asking a lot of the same questions. And honestly, a lot of what we're talking about here today is built on the foundation of people like that, doing that legwork for us. So, anyway, yeah, would love to have you submit a question. And, and if we get a chance to get to it, that would be great. Um, but if not, be looking for that video uh, during the week. Now, I alluded to this earlier, but the big question today that we're going to be getting into is, Jesus is God. All right, this is kind of a big one, right? This is kind of, you know, it's not a, you know, it's not really like that, you know, crazy to claim that Jesus, there was a man named Jesus and he came and said, hey, I'm a prophet. That's not that crazy of a claim. And it's not that crazy of a claim to say, like, he died, right? Because, I mean, most, most people die. Like, it's kind of a normal thing for humans to do. Um, it gets a little crazier when we say he came back to life again, and it gets really crazy when we say this is actually God coming in the form of a person. And I think we can kind of just, like if we grow up in the church, it's just something we hear and we kind of believe, and we don't really ask, like, how do we get to that point where we, we thought that that was the case? Um, or maybe we, we have, uh, like, you know, the language that's grown up around that in the church. So let me just uh, but we don't, we don't really think about how we got to the point of using that language. So let me just read. This is art from our statement of faith, which we take from our denomination, Converge. And it's really just a common language. Like You would have a hard time finding a church, an Orthodox church, that didn't use similar language to describe what they believed about who God was. So this is what we, we have down. We believe that there is one living and true God, eternally existing in three persons, that these are equal in every divine perfection, and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. And if that doesn't make sense, that means you're understanding it, because it's not supposed to make sense. It's supposed to be weird, and any time you use an analogy, it breaks down at a certain point, right? If you've you know, kind of really studied this, that's what people will tell you. It's supposed to be really crazy and weird, right? And, but where does this stuff come from? Um, because while it's something all Christians have tended to, to agree on, um, it, it's kind of hard to ground it. And like our, our Muslim and Mormon and Jehovah's Witness and, and maybe you know, non-believing Bible scholar friends will point out to us that 
most of the words that show up in here, other than like God, don't show up in the Bible. And so that's kind of a, a question, like, well, how do we get to the point where we're using all this language, this kind of philosophical understanding of who God is to describe who Jesus is, right? Jesus doesn't ever use the word Trinity. Nowhere in the Bible do you find the word Trinity. Uh, there, and if you're going to play the proof text game, which is what a lot of times, you know, our response is, like, find the proof text verse and just, you know, the Mormon person is at our door and, hey, we'll go to the, maybe you've never read your Bible, Mormon person. Here, read this verse. This verse proves that Jesus is God. That's a really hard verse to find, all right? And if you've really looked into this, you maybe have found that to be the case, too. Um, and they'll say things like, these are really later developments, right? This is not necessarily what Jesus or his first followers were getting at because it's so hard. At least they claim it's so hard to sort of figure out how you get to this point. And so let me just start by saying, it's actually a lot of truth to what they're, what, 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 what they're saying, that challenge. So if you're asking yourself, like, what is the proof text verse? Is it, there's a few in there that are, that are better than others, but it's really hard to find just one sort of verse to prove the point. And actually, that's a good thing. I mean, I'm thankful the Bible's a lot more interesting than that, just like a book of answers I can go study and find the right one and memorize it and go around telling people, you know, this line, and then they're supposed to believe that. The Bible is not that book, which I'm actually really happy about. I hope you are too, okay? The Bible is a story that is sort of un, you know, uh, developing who God is and what God is doing in the world. And to really understand that well, you have to immerse yourself into that story to sort of find the significance to it. And so we're going to do that today, um, but I just, before we jump into it, I just want to ju- jump in and say, like, this is another place where deconstruction is helpful, right? Because it helps us to get past, again, proof text verses, it helps us to get past just things we've heard, right, that we've maybe grown up in, and actually study for ourselves, why is this sort of what Christians have believed, really going back to the very beginning. So we're going to do that a little bit today. Um, but the best place to start with it is not really starting with Jesus. I think the best place to start is by asking this question. Who is Yahweh? All right, if we're going to, you know, figure out who, you know, if, that, that Jesus is God, we're going to have to figure out who God is, first of all. Now, when I say who is Yahweh, I want you to think about it like this, okay? So think about two people who know who Superman is, all right? Just imagine you're, you're reading a comic book, and, and, and it's a Superman comic book, and there's two people in the comic who talk about knowing Jesus, or sorry, knowing Superman. Um, the first person is like a sort of random person on the street, someone who, I don't know, who works at a bank, that, you know, gets robbed all the time because this is always happens in comic books. And, right, and they know that Superman has, you know, super strength and super speed and he can shoot lasers from his eyes and, like, bank robbers don't stand a chance against him. And, uh, like, you know, that, that's who Superman is. He's, a, he's the flash of red and blue that I see flying across the sky sometimes, right? He can do what no other human can. Now, to this person, Superman is, like, the sum total of attributes, right? He's kind of the person that can, you know, lift a bus and fly around the earth and shoot lasers from his eyes. That's, that's what he is. He's known by the attributes that he has. Now, the second person in this comic is Lois Lane. Lois Lane, if you're not familiar with Superman, this is Superman's love interest, okay? Now, she knows Superman as not Superman, but as Clark Kent, right? As this, you know, person who she's friends with, who's in her life, um, 
And yes, she knows he has these attributes. She knows that he can fly and shoot lasers from his eyes and can, you know, pick up a tank. She knows that about him, but primarily she knows him as someone who's a part of her life, who's a part of the story that she lives in. And so she, when she thinks about his powers, she thinks about these powers as things that have maybe rescued her. She can think of a specific situation where Clark used his laser vision to, I don't, I don't know, save her from some danger or carve like a heart with an L and a C in a tree or something like that, right? That's how she knows who Superman is and about his powers. They're, they're involved in, in her own life. Um, and she understands that this guy has a personality, Right? And this is all the context for which these, these things that are true about Superman uh, play out. These are the things for her that make Clark Clark, that make him who he is. When she thinks of his identity, she thinks of this stuff, right? In the context of her lived relationship with him. So the first person I talked about thinks of Superman as a concept. But Lois thinks of Superman as a, as a person with an identity, with a story that all of that plays within. And I think that's an important sort of distinction because for us in the modern world, we tend to think, I think, of God as sort of, you know, concepts, right? The supreme, perfect being, right? He's all good. He's all powerful. He knows everything. He can do whatever he wants, right? We know him kind of philosophically. That's how we tend to talk about him right? He, he, he's behind divine coincidences. He's the thing that we sort of uh, put a quarter in to, you know, get something back from. He's the thing we pray to, right? And, and I think that, that, you know, I think in Christianity, we, we try to understand him deeper than that, but like that still is there a lot of times for us when we talk about who God is. Now, Israel and, and Yahweh specifically, this is the name that they had for this covenant God of, uh, that, that we call God now. Um, they didn't think of him as a concept. Okay? Yes, they thought of him as creator of the world. They thought of him as above all the other gods, not just some tribal deity uh, who maybe had control over one aspect of nature, but the, the God who created the whole world and therefore controlled everything. He was full of power, right? They did think of him like that, but he wasn't just the collection of those attributes. He had an identity to them, and scholars will call this sort of the divine identity that they gave to God. And so when they thought of Yahweh, they didn't just think of these attributes about him, but they thought about these attributes that had played out in specific um, uh, points in their story, because their story was so connected to who Yahweh was. When they thought about him having these attributes or these things that made him God, they thought about them because he had shown that in their story. It was part of their heritage, a part of their history. And so when we talk about how Israel understood who Yahweh was, we have to talk about that story because that's how they understand who their God is. And the story is this. When we come to the first century, the time where Jesus shows up on the scene, this is where the story's at. Yahweh had kind of been missing. Okay, he had, he, you know, they still understood him to be Yahweh, to be God, to sort of, you know, ruling the earth, but he had not really shown up in their uh, story as a people for a long time. And so Israel had kind of been struggling to get by for a long time, right? Going from the time where they went into exile to Babylon, really up until the present day, right? They'd come back to the land, they'd rebuilt the temple, but things were not really going how they expected it to. And it seemed like God had not come back. 
And so they were sort of scattered now. The Jewish people were scattered across the world. They were sort of uh, waiting, filled with questions. They're confused, they're hurt, right? They just want Yahweh to come back and act again like he always had as a part of their history, doing things like delivering them from uh, Egypt, right? Uh, Doing things like giving them victories over nations as they led, as he led them out from there and they sort of established themselves as a kingdom and as they became uh, great uh, after that. They were waiting for stuff like that to come back. And so if you read the prophets, they're talking about this expectation of the return of Yahweh to his people, right? And these are the prophecies that we often hear, right? A lot of times, like we'll talk about uh, you know, prophecies like in the book of Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or some of the, the smaller minor prophets. And most of those prophecies that we read that we're maybe familiar with are about Yahweh returning to Israel in power, like the thing that the people are waiting for in the first century. That's the context for this stuff. And so um, when you read them and you read stuff like this, like Isaiah 40, which we did as part of our call to worship today, this is the story it's taking place within. Okay, so Isaiah 40, we're just going to do verses 10 to 11. And I just want to say, this part of Isaiah is like maybe the most sort of important part of this expectation of people waiting for Yahweh to return. This is where they went back to constantly, was the book of Isaiah, from really from chapters 40 to 66, to the end of the book, for their understanding of what it would look like when Yahweh returned. And it would look like this. And this is a good sort of, this is just two verses of that, but it's a really good summation of what they're expecting. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So when he returned, it would look like this. He'd come in power, right? Some of that power that they had seen showcased when he delivered them in the past, and made them a great nation, but he'd also come uh, as a shepherd. He was sort of gathering, you know, tenderly gathering the people back together again from being scattered across the world, from being filled with questions, being hurt, right? Being like sheep that are lost, right? If, if you know anything about sheep, when they get lost, it usually doesn't go very well for them. They need someone to protect them. When Yahweh returned, he would come and, and bring them back in, just like a shepherd brings the sheep in. These lost, weary lambs being sought out after by their shepherd. And he'd redeem them. He'd ransom them, like we talked about last week. He would, he would bring them back from their exiled status. This is what they're waiting for, okay? And sort of all of their hope as a people is around this moment, waiting for this to be the case for them. And so for people in Jesus' time, Yahweh was known by what he'd done and by what he would do. This is when they thought of who Yahweh was. This is what they're thinking about, is this specific uh, story and the expectation of it. So along comes Jesus, this prophet who's coming around talking about God doing something through him, something new is happening. People need to listen up and respond to what he's saying. And he seems like when you really study what he's doing and what he says about himself and what the people who are closest to them to him said about him, it really seems like he has some sort of self-understanding that he is to be and do what Yahweh said he would be and do when he returned to them. And it's almost like if you were to take a picture of what 
all this expectation of what Yahweh is doing from all these prophets, and you would put them into a person, it's really hard to come up with a picture other than Jesus himself. Okay? And this is, this is subtle, but it's clear, all right? It works through illusion a lot of times. It doesn't work through, you know, specifically like a, him saying this outright. But if you really look at what he's hinting at and what he's doing, it becomes pretty clear that this is the sort of identity that Jesus is taking on himself. Now, let me give you some examples of this, okay? First one is here is from uh, Luke 15, verses uh, 1 to 5, okay? So just, I'll set it up with the first couple of verses here, though. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Okay, tax collectors and sinners, not really thought of that highly in this society. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, man, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Can you get a load of this guy? Now, we talked about in the first sermon how Jesus was sort of welcoming in all the wrong people, right? People who were typically cast out, right? He was, he was a prophet, mighty in works and deeds. But a lot of his, you know, mighty works that he did were, were not just about sort of, you know, making people who were, you know, uh, had some disability, like, not have it anymore. Like, obviously, that's a part of it. But there's more to it than that because he's making it so these people whose, uh, whose impurities were keeping them separated from the people of Israel, he's making it so that they can come back in now. That this sort of separation that can come from uh, these different impurities that people might have no longer have to be kept out. And he also did things like forgive people of sin, which again, sin was the sort of, if you were seen as a sinner, it was supposed to mark this sort of uh, distinction, this sort of barrier between you and good standing with the rest of the people of Israel and God. When Jesus forgives people's sins, he's making it so they can sort of come back in and be a part and be regathered again into the people of Israel. And, and he seems like he was seeking people out, discarded people out, people who, like, people like the Pharisees didn't think very highly of. He's going and making it so the Pharisees no longer have any reason to sort of separate them out from the assembly of Israel any longer. And Jesus, to respond to them, he uses a parable to sort of describe what he's doing. So then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, like, if you were a shepherd, this is what you do, right? This is your job. This is how you're supposed to handle sheep that get lost. You're supposed to go get them and bring them back into the, to the fold, to the flock of sheep. Well, guess what? I'm a shepherd, and this is what I'm up to. I'm going and I'm gathering these sort of scattered people, these discarded sheep, and bringing them back into the flock again. And that's why I hang out with sinners and tax collectors and other people who you consider impure. It's because I'm bringing them back in again to the flock. Now this parable fits exactly, I think, the description of God when, that we read about in Isaiah just a little bit ago, coming to regather these scattered people, okay? Reminder, this is what, it, what, what Isaiah says. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Right? And Ezekiel 34 is another place where this idea of God as shepherd coming to gather the sheep again in is very, very, very clear and hard to miss. Okay? 
And this party that Jesus is talking about, uh, you know, this talks about rejoicing with the neighbors. This is this party to celebrate that Israel's being back, gathered back together, together again. Right? These meals with sinners is celebrations that they have been found. They've been brought back into the fold now. And Jesus, he, you know, this is just one example, but he describes himself in this way quite often. He uses the language of shepherd and the people as sheep on a pretty regular basis. Another really great place is Matthew 12, 30, uh, where Jesus says, like, if you're not, basically he says, if you're not with me, then you're sort of against me gathering the sheep back together again in the flock. So you can kind of be a part of this regathering of Israel, or you can be a part of the scattering of it. All right, so again, very clear allusion to Isaiah, I think, there. This, this sort of language to describe what only Yahweh was going to do. Jesus is kind of talking about himself, like, yeah, I'm doing that. Like, I'm the one that's gathering these people back together. Let's talk about another example. In Isaiah 40, he talked about the sovereign Lord coming with power. All right, here's a good example of this, and it comes from Mark 4. So Mark 4, 37 to 41. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. They were terrified and asked each other, this is the disciples, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So Jesus is in a boat, he's taking a nap, he's taking a break. I mean, in the context of the story, like, he's constantly flooded with people, and he's like, let's go to the other side of the lake, I'm going to catch a little siesta in this boat, okay? So anyway, he, they're, they're, crossing the, they're crossing the lake, he's taking a nap, and this, you know, sort of storm comes up, and the disciples are freaked out, and they're waking Jesus up, and they're asking him to help out, or like, hey, do you know what's going on here? Like, uh, we, you should, you know, we all got to get all hands on deck to try to keep the boat from overturning here. And you get the sense Jesus is like a dad who's like, kid, just woke him up from a nap because like, I don't know, they, they lost a toy or, or something like that. And, and so he kind of gets up and he, he tells the waves to chill out. And I like to think he went back, right back to sleep after this. Uh, I feel like that fits well with the story. But the disciples are just in awe over what just happened. And sort of can't figure out what's going on. And they ask the question, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, the question's not answered. Actually, the, the story shifts to something else. Mark moves on to something else. He just sort of like, leaves the question hanging there. And, you know, it's like he knows the answer, but he's afraid to say it. He doesn't want to kind of say it outright. He just leaves the question hanging there. And he likes you to answer the question, basically, it seems like is what he wants. And Mark knows, if you're familiar with your Bible, your Jewish scriptures, you would have a thought probably about what this, you know, what the answer to this question is because you know that there's only one who has this sort of power. And there's lots of examples of this. Again, so Psalm 107, uh, 28 and 30. Uh, this is where some people decide to go on a boat trip and a storm comes up and this is what happens. So they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed, and they were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. So in their distress, they cry out to Yahweh, and Yahweh stills the storms to a whisper, and he sort of hushes the waves for them. The resemblance between what's going on in this story and in Mark is pretty jarring, really. I mean, it really is exactly the same thing that's going on, and Yahweh is the one who has the power to calm the storm in that story. Now, if you think that's jarring, check this one out. 
This is from Isaiah 51. Again, the same sort of section of Isaiah that we talked about before that formed the expectation of Israel for what it would be like when Yahweh comes. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake, as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. So think about what's going on here, all right? The people are rousing God. They feel like he's sleeping and they need to rouse him to come to their defense. And when, when he comes to deliver them, the language that's used to describe his power is the power over the wind and waves to sort of make the sea stand up again so people could walk through safely in the midst of this sort of chaotic sea. Okay, so again, this is the type of power that Isaiah is saying Israel needs in their deliverance when, they, when Yahweh will return. Okay, that's the context for all of this. And it's exactly the same power that the sleeping Jesus just showed, right? People coming to him, rousing him from his sleep to come and to deliver them because he has the power over the wind and the waves. And I think the way that Mark tells the story, he wants us to see the sort of parallels or the allusions to this, right? People who write the Gospels, if you, again, if you really study this, like, it's very, very, very clear. They intend you to sort of hyperlink back to or catch allusions back to other places in the Old Testament. So let's recap these two examples here, okay? Jesus is gathering the people of Israel together just like Yahweh said he would do, using the same language to describe what he's up to. And he does so with a power that only Yahweh is supposed to command. All of this is in the context of what we've talked about, of Isaiah 40 and 66 and these other prophets. Now, I could rattle off other examples. These are just a couple of them, right? Places like John the Baptist saying, you know, using uh, uh, this, this, this talk about preparing the paths for the Lord. I'm a prophet in the wilderness saying, Yahweh's about to come. And then Jesus shows up next thing, okay? Or um, Jesus forgiving sin. We talked about that earlier. This is only something Yahweh's supposed to do. Or uh, uh, Jesus claiming to the Sanhedrin, these people who are talking about executing him and using language from Daniel 7 about this figure who shares the authority of God himself, Yahweh himself, to describe what he's up to. Okay, I I think you kind of get the point here, right? I don't need to keep going. The clear subtext, I think, here is that Jesus is embodying Yahweh himself and he's sort of taking on the identity and the characteristics of what they're understood of who Yahweh was supposed to be. All right? So this is kind of our starting point. I realize when we start here, though, we don't necessarily get to, you know, the language that we talk about a lot of times now. Again, no talk of Trinity or persons or substances or, or anything like that, right, that we read a lot of times. Nothing like sort of the debates, if you read about the debates that the church has had in the past uh, around the Arian controversy or the councils that they've done to sort of hammer this stuff out, right, or the stuff that made it into our statement of faith. Like, you don't see any of that stuff here. And when we deconstruct, when we ask hard questions, like we do need to ask like, how the church sort of developed to where it is today. And sometimes we're going to find like the development wasn't that linear. It wasn't actually kind of building up off of you know, who Jesus was and what he was up to. All right? Uh, and this is why we need it. This is why we need prophecy to challenge that stuff, to ask, are we actually being faithful to God? Um, but 
just because something developed doesn't mean it's unfaithful either, okay? And I think this is a really helpful quote, at least for me. I found this to be a really helpful quote for me to sort of understand like how certain things do develop over the course of the history of the church. And this comes from Rowan Williams. He's formerly the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, and he writes this in his book, The Wound of Knowledge. Christian faith has its beginnings in an experience so, uh, sorry, of profound contradictoriness. I bet you've never heard that word before. An experience which so questions the religious categories of its time that the resulting reorganization of religious language was a centuries-long task. Okay, so something really profound and huge happened that really, to understand it in depth, you need some time. You need a lot of people to sort of like make sense of what actually happened here. Think of it like an explosion, all right? Like a, a bomb goes off in a building, right? And on, like on a TV show or movie, like the CSI people show up and they recreate what happened, right? Everyone knows something happened, right? But they don't really know what. And the only way to sort of figure out what happened in that brief moment of explosion is to sort of piece it back together again. And it takes a lot of time, it takes some expertise, it takes some wisdom and thought to sort of you know, reconstruct exactly what took place here, right? It, it happens much slower than the actual explosion itself took. I think that if God really did come in person, right? If God really did wrap himself in human flesh and, and approach people, you know, as one of them, but still did all of the stuff that Yahweh was going to do, something so profound would need a lot of time and thought to reorganize language and reconstruct sort of metaphysically what had just happened. Like that would take a lot of time and thought to sort of figure out, really through generations, really through people getting together and sort of discussing and challenging each other and trying to make sense of it, knowing at the end of the day that this is a really profound mystery, all right? And we can only kind of approach it so far before we sort of run out of, you know, our ability to describe what actually took place here. But just because we can't do that fully doesn't mean it didn't happen. Doesn't mean that we can't take Jesus seriously in what he's talking about with what he's doing. And so I think the church has taken up the task of faith, seeking understanding to something that is sort of beyond our comprehension. And it's important for us to retain this sort of wonder and mystery when it comes to our faith, this sort of contradictoriness of it. But that doesn't make it not true. It just means we sort of have to seek it out even more. And we can't rely on stuff that we've just inherited or received or grown up thinking for sure, but we have to sort of devote ourselves to seeking Jesus out and understanding in more and more depth. And, I, and again, I think that this is really a good starting place for us um, because it's where God wants us to start, all right? Christianity is founded on a simple yet explosive idea that if we want to know who God is, we start with Jesus, we're not supposed to start other places, all right? When God telling the people of Israel, I'm going to come, I'm going to do this stuff, you should expect it, and then he reveals himself in that way, in a person, walking around, literally going up to people, gathering them back in, showing them empathy and love and care, but sometimes challenging people. When God comes to us in that way, that seems to me to be the place he wants us to start in understanding who he is. It's the most clear and, and understandable way to grasp who he is. And so I think he's asking us to start there, to not start with concepts, to not start with things we've necessarily received, even if they're right, but to start by going to who God is revealed to us in Jesus. And really, this sermon series we're doing is sort of premised on this idea 
that if we want to know who God is, if we want to know how to build up the house of faith, we have to start here. Because that's where God is asking us to start. And so it's essential for us to continue to go back to Jesus over and over again. Now, for the purposes of us sort of finding something to rebuild around, um, a starting point that this series is sort of premised on right here, I, I just two things, a couple takeaways here. First of all, when we look at, G, at God come in Jesus, what does it tell us about who God is? I think it tells us, first of all, that God is wrapped in mystery, okay? When we ask questions, when we reassess things, we shouldn't be surprised that if we really go in seeking Jesus out, seeking God out, we're going to get answers back that we don't expect. The people of Israel were waiting for God. They were hoping for God to come. They were hoping for God to come and meet them and answer their questions. And he showed up in a way that none of them expected. We have a lot of writings from the first century and, and kind of leading up to that time with guesses at what it would look like when Yahweh would return. None of them really put it this way. Okay, So I think what we're learning here is that when we do seek God out, he's going to meet us in ways we don't expect because he is mysterious. He is beyond us. And if we try to put him in a box, which is what we do a lot of times in the church, right? a lot of the reasons that maybe we're feeling like asking hard questions or deconstructing is because we've been in spaces where people tried too fully to put God into a box, we find that God doesn't want, doesn't want to be put into our boxes right? There is, a, there is a, a whole side of God that is beyond our comprehension, and we're supposed to be okay with that. And as we seek him out in our hard questions that we ask, we shouldn't be too surprised if he meets us in a way we don't expect. This is why it matters that we don't go in trying to put together a picture of Jesus back again that's just a mirror, like we talked about in the first sermon, but we're willing to be surprised or confronted by who God is. And, and Jesus, I think, is the number one example of this. Okay, so that's true, but also the second thing, and this is where I want to end today, that we learn about who God is when we start by looking at Jesus, is that God is full of love. If you are deconstructing, if you're asking hard questions, I realize that that can be a real challenge, right? I mean, I, I realize like this, it hurts to do that a lot of times. You can feel lost, you can feel confused, you can feel hurt, you can sort of wonder where God is, you can be maybe even afraid to meet God, right? And honestly, like, you might feel a little bit like Israel was feeling as they waited for God to return, as they waited for Yahweh to show up in the way that he was going to come, right? There was a lot of hurt there. There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of hard questions being asked of Yahweh to make sense of it. Now, if God came to them as a shepherd, bringing his people back into the flock, gathering them together tenderly with care, how do you think he wants to approach you? as you maybe find yourself in a similar place to Israel, right? If this is who God is, Jesus, then he's a God who seeks to regather us together again. That's his goal. That's what he's up to. When we start at Jesus, it's hard to come to any other conclusion about who God is. He doesn't want to, you know, gather us together again in the misconceptions maybe that we have led us to asking questions in the first place, but he wants to regather us into a fuller sense of who he actually is. Okay? The question really is, is if we're going to let him, we're going to let God gather us back in together again. Because that's who he is, and, and if we're going to start with Jesus, and we're going to believe that this is true, this is what we should expect. Let me pray, and then we will move to a time of, of questions. Lord, thank you that, um, just like Israel, who was left confused and hurting, wondering 
where you were, Lord. When we feel the same things, and I guarantee you, we, we all feel these same questions at some point in our life, that we can at least rest firm on the understanding that who you are is revealed to us in Jesus, and Jesus sought to gather us back together again in love. Lord, I pray that we can see you in that light as you revealed yourself to us, Lord, especially in those moments where we really need it. We thank you that that's who you are in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we'll take a few questions here and then we'll move into a time of communion and worship. Any questions? Yes, okay, so I'll give you one. Hopefully you can keep this one shorter. Uh, what, what does, if you've been watching the videos, you know that this is a challenge for Joel. Um, what does proof text mean? You mentioned that a lot yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, so I mean, we, so okay, so Again, it's not a bad, I think it's right for us as Christians to believe the Bible is the book that God wants us to have. It's inspired, or you can use inerrant, or, or true, or authoritative, or whatever. These are words that Christians have used to describe the Bible. But sometimes we just kind of take it as like a book filled with like um, sentences that we can just kind of pull out because we think that this book is authoritative or it's given to us by God, that like we can sort of, if we get the, the right sentence, we can sort of use it like a sword and wield it however we want to. And that's not what the Bible is, okay? And so uh, we're going to do a whole sermon on this. So, so maybe I'll, I'll kind of, you know, develop this more fully about what it means for us to say the Bible is inspired by God. It's the book God wants us to have. It has authority. Uh, spoiler alert, it's all rooted in Jesus. Like without Jesus, the Bible is just another book, okay? That's what, that's what we're going to kind of talk about. But um, it, it, it's not like, again, this, the Bible is a story. It's not written as a book for you to sort of just pull out verses and use however you want to, which is how we use it a lot of times. What it is, is it's a story for us to sort of, uh, about who God is and about, for, that we're supposed to kind of become a part of ourselves, with Jesus' sort of central character, okay? So anyway, for us to really understand the Bible well, just sort of pulling it out, using verses however we want, is not how the Bible wants to be used. And there's a lot of examples in Christian history of people doing this, through some pretty horrible sort of effects. Like if you read about uh, slavery, right, in, in the Americas, and uh, like a lot of people were just pulling out verses and using them as a bludgeon to sort of beat back anyone who said, hey, this slavery thing, I don't know if this is what God intends, right? And you can do that if that's how you use the Bible. A lot of people have, maybe you've experienced this in your own sort of life. People using, you know, verses to kind of beat you over the head with or something like that. And that's just fundamentally not what the Bible is supposed to be. I mean, the whole idea of chapters and verses are not even original to the Bible, right? Like when we read a verse, we're supposed to understand it's a part of like a whole section, which is part of a whole book, which is a part of like the whole Bible itself. It's one large story, and we have to understand things in the context of that story if we're really going to understand what's going on within it. So anyway, yeah, we're just not reading, I mean, short answer, we're not reading the Bible like it wants to be read. That's, what's, that's, that's what I mean. All right, um, here is a good one. Help me understand the paradox of Jesus praying in the garden to the Father, but he is also himself Yahweh. Yeah, well, uh, it's all a mystery. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, again, like, so this is where, now you start to understand, right? Put yourself in the shoes of people who followed in the next few generations after Jesus, and they're like, okay, we think Jesus is God. This seems to be what he was saying, but he also sort of like, he himself speaks to God too. There seems to be some differentiation between him and God, 
right? There seems to be like, uh, like it's like God is a bigger, bigger idea than just sort of one person. It seems like there's kind of several elements to it. And as they started to ask those questions, they started to realize, we have to come up with language to help us understand what this means, okay? So that's how you get to a place where it's like, God is one, but he's also sort of three persons within that, and it doesn't make sense. And it's okay that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make it untrue just because we can't totally fully wrap our heads around it. Um, so yeah, I could give a, I mean, I think that's a good place to start, I guess, without going on longer than that. All right. Um, this is kind of in response to what you said at the end of your sermon. If we're not supposed to put God in a box, then do we have any bounds or guardrails on the person of Jesus? Mm-hmm. And then they say, every counsel and doctrine or explanation seems to keep redefining the box or the guardrails that are convenient for their own agenda or perspective. So what's a more objective way to understand this? without human bias? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, it's true. I mean, and like we said in the first sermon, like we can sort of, you know, we can get rid of one picture of Jesus, which is totally wrong, that we've inherited, and we can put a mirror up instead, which is just sort of a reflection of our own agenda, right? And we have to be careful to not do that. Um, and I think I, the guardrails, I mean, for me, I'll just speak for me again, um, the guardrails, I think, are really understanding historically who Jesus was. Like going back to the Gospels, reading them through, thinking deeply, reading other you know, people who have written about this, understanding the history stuff of this, right? Like I used a lot of history today and a lot of, you know, like what is Israel waiting for when Yahweh returns to sort of help us understand this? The history can be a really helpful guardrail. I think. Um, and just sort of going to Jesus himself and reading through it. And again, not just, you know, he says this, when I hear this word or this phrase, this is what I think of, what do I, what do I think Jesus actually meant when he said that? And be willing to be wrong. Be willing, and, and be willing to, um, if this is what you've inherited in the church, right, just because that's what you've heard before, be willing to say maybe there was something that was a part of someone else's conception of Jesus in that. And so be willing to sort of, again, be confronted, be, con- be surprised by who Jesus is when we actually sort of study him in depth, kind of taking a full, uh, you know, full picture of him from the go- all the Gospels, from what people who were around him said about him in these letters in the New Testament, and then the story of the Bible itself. And there's a lot there, right? There, there is a lot, lot of, I think, content there are guardrails there for us to kind of keep us within, um, you know, something. So we're not just going off to kind of say whatever we want to. But I would start there. Um, I would start there, and I, yeah, that's a good place, I think, to start. Okay, last one uh, for this morning. Did the Jews believe in the Trinity? It seems like their denial of the Trinity in contemporary dialogue points to no, but Christians seem to maintain that God revealed a triune uh, partition of the Godhead. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, good question. Um, So, I mean, Christians have gone back to places in the Old Testament to sort of say, you know, after the fact, this is Jesus, right? So, example, a couple of examples. Um, Daniel in the, or sorry, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Something like um, there were these sort of people in this giant furnace, and then they see a fourth person standing in there. It's like a real person, and Christians have said that must that was probably Jesus. Like, um, or you'll hear about the angel of the Lord that comes sometimes to meet with people, uh, and the language around that is it's kind of you know, the angel of the Lord is clearly distinct from the other angels. 
And, and another, another place is in, even in Genesis 1, and God's saying, um, you know, let's make man in our image. He uses sort of plural language to describe that stuff. Christians have, mostly after the fact, looked at those types of passages and said, oh, here's, here's um, the Trinity, where, where we see that God is using plural, plural language. We see um, human-like figures that sort of seem to represent God. And um, I will say that some of those passages aren't as clear-cut as Christians like to make them out to be, okay? So the Genesis 1 one, you can also understand that in a very different way that makes a lot more sense just sort of of the mindset of a Jewish person in that time and place. Um, the angel of the Lord language is, again, just really hard to nail down what, what's actually going on there. Um, and so I think I would say most Jews would say this is not, this is not a good place to go to prove to me that um, God is Trinitarian. I can't speak for all, all Jewish people, um, but um, I think, yeah, again, the only f- reason that Christians went back and sort of, you know, reinterpreted those texts was because of this self-revelation of God in a new, fresh way in Jesus, right? It's only through that sort of new category of thinking about who Yahweh is that Christians even had the idea to read those texts those ways. And so our starting point is, you know, still with Jesus either way. And you know, if you read those texts and you're like, I think the best way to explain this is not necessarily God, you know, revealing himself um, proleptically in this Trinitarian way. That's okay. It doesn't really do anything to the idea of the Trinity because um, we're starting with Jesus. And that's our foundational point. Um, and we're believing that when God says, this is who I am, I'd rather you start with Jesus than go back to some other Old Testament passage. You know, we can believe that that's true, that this is God's intention is for us to start here. And we can sort of live in the mystery of that. And it's okay to have loose ends in, you know, different passages when we read them and to sort of be like, could be this, could be that, could be something I, don't, I haven't thought of. And I'm very comfortable. I have harmony being in that spot because I'm rooting myself on Jesus and not on something else. So, good question.